This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Thursday, June 30th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, firefighters combat fire outside of Norwood, Sunnyside Lottery is luck of the draw, San Juan's see changing climate, and a mountain weather forecast. Firefighters are working a wildfire north of Norwood. The horsefly fire started around 7.30 p.m. on Wednesday, June 29th on the Grand Mesa and Compagre and Gunnison National Forests. It was this morning before we could really get out and get a good look at it and start working on it. So it's about two acres. It's about seven miles north of north of Norwood on the south side of Patterson Mountain. That's Glenn Sackett, a public information officer for the GMUG. It's an area that's in um, heavy dead and down material with in pinyon juniper kind of a forest. Um, it's not terribly steep, but it's just a lot of fuel and a lot of uh, slow handwork. According to Sackett, the fire started from a lightning strike. We took a lot of lightning over the last couple of days, and we've got whole smokes uh, we're chasing all over the place. But most of those are just you know little spots. A tenth of an acre in size. This one got a little bit bigger, like I said, almost two acres. He had a chance to uh, kind of creep around and smolder, and and so we've, we're working on it um, real hard. Actually, we, this afternoon, uh, for most of the morning anyway, we got some precipitation on it. Um, so we're making really good progress. It's holding at two acres, so it's not growing any. Um, it's just a lot of uh, slow hard work. There are 16 firefighters currently working to suppress the fire, and one hotshot crew has been ordered. Sackett says he's confident in the team. Our resources are good. Uh, We've got uh, real competent people out there, and um, they're just going, you know, slow and steady and and making good progress. With that said, Sackett estimates it will likely take crews several days to fully extinguish the fire. There are currently no road or trail closures from the horsefly fire, and no structures are threatened. Still, GMUG officials urge visitors to be attentive of their surroundings and practice smart wildfire prevention behavior. In addition, GMUG officials ask visitors to be aware of fire traffic and avoid the area. Hundreds of balls are laid out in Ziploc bags on a table in Rebecca Hall in Telluride. But these aren't just any balls. They're the numbered balls that are about to be drawn in the lottery for the Telluride region's newest affordable housing, the Sunnyside Project. I'm excited. Melanie Wasserman is the housing director for the town of Telluride, which has developed the 30-unit project in partnership with San Miguel County. Wasserman admits she has mixed feelings about the lottery. I know that the process is set up to prioritize and appreciate people who have really been invested in the community, who've been living here and working here the longest. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to chance, there is something that's a little heartbreaking about that. Uh, I do really hope, though, that folks who are in this lottery are able to find stable housing, whether it's Sunnyside or someplace else. A little more than 170 households are entered. 25 units are up for grabs. Each household has a different number of balls, depending on whether they meet various qualifications. All in all, there's about 360 balls. 
I love this kind of day, but I'm also just looking at how many balls are on the table right now going into the lottery and how many spots we have. It just really makes me realize how many more of these projects we need to get going and get finished. Geneva Shawnette is one of the Telluride Town Council members attending the lottery. We have a long way to go, so victory, but a small victory in my book, and we're going to keep, keep trying to build these buildings as efficiently as possible. As Rebecca Hall fills up, the excitement is palpable. Julie and David King have one ball, number 88. They've been in the area for four years and have three kids. David works lift operations for the Telluride Ski Resort. Um, I've been living in Montrose the past two seasons while David's had a big Billy's condo that we come and see him on the weekends with the family. David says it would mean everything if they got housing in Sunnyside. It's my, my life dream to have my kids at the base of the ski area. Zachary Kula works at Smugglers and commutes from Norwood. He's been in the area since 1998. As the lottery approaches, he says he's actually relaxed. I'm used to not living close to town, so it'd be really nice, be luxurious, <laughs> but luxury is not a necessity. But for some, the lottery is existential, at least when it comes to being in Telluride. Allison Canella says she and her boyfriend might leave the area if they don't get picked and no other viable housing comes up. We're giving it till the end of the season. Haley Terrell and Mark Reinier have been in the area since 2010. They're renting a place in Telluride, but Terrell says they don't have enough bedroom space for their two kids. And so they're getting older and sharing a room won't last for very long. <laughs> a boy and a girl, you know. It's going to be remodeled as well in the next couple of years. And so that's not, when that happens, we're out, you know. So another move is not what we're looking for. Well, one more move, hopefully. I'll give the final word before the proceedings begin to their five-year-old, Adelaide. Go Sunnyside! <laughs> Several local government officials speak before the ball drawing begins, including County Commissioner Lance Waring. For those of you that do not win, do not despair, do not leave town, and do keep the pressure up on both your government officials and on the community itself to continue to provide housing for our community. Soon after, with dozens of people in Rebecca Hall and many more watching remotely over Zoom, the moment arrives. Locals Todd Brown, Corinne Cavender, and Amy Levick begin spinning the ball cage and picking numbers. People don't have to be present for the drawing, and it seems like the first few picked aren't. But Claudia Garcia Curcio is the first person in the room whose number is called. I live in a dungeon right now, which I will say, like, I'm very grateful and thankful that I've had housing in this community. Um, but to have like security that my building's not going to get sold or if I'm going to be able to stay there, yeah, feels good. <laughs> Canella was also one of the first polled at number 16. I was surprised because <laughs> yeah, I've never won anything. <laughs> Maybe now I play the Powerball. <laughs> Since households had to enter the lottery by unit type, a low or high number doesn't guarantee someone will or won't get a unit. Town will call people in the order they were drawn over the coming days to assign units. That's why, even though she gets picked 124th, Jennifer Laney is still holding on to hope. 
It's like a ludicrous way to try to find a place to live, but it is what it is, and it's where we live. And if you want to be here, you got to play the game. So we'll play the game. We'll wait and see how it goes. It's almost an hour until all the households are drawn. And at the end, call it poetic, call it irony, call it the housing lottery. The final household drawn is ball number The complete lottery results are available on the Sunnyside section of the Town of Telluride website. The town will contact households in the order they were selected over the coming days via phone about unit selection. For those who do get units, move-in will vary depending on the type. The tiny homes and three-bedroom units are estimated to be ready for move-in at the end of July. The four-bedroom units are estimated to be ready in September. And the one- and two-bedroom Sunnyside units are estimated to be ready for move-in toward the end of 2022. The climate is changing around the world, and the San Juan Mountains are no different. This week, the San Miguel County Board of Commissioners heard a presentation on trends in the region from John Norton, a retired land and water appraiser. The presentation summarizes a paper put together by Norton and Michael Preston, the former general manager of the Dolores Water Conservancy District. You know, we prepared it in the spirit of citizen science, but it really isn't a scientific paper. I would characterize this more as a historical accounting of what has happened in the 21st century in the San Juan Mountains. That's Norton briefing the BOCC this week. It's not a sophisticated hydrologic model or climate model attempting to explain reasons for the trends, and it does not make projections about future trends. With those caveats, Norton presents the data. Over the last several decades, temperatures in the San Juans have had a consistent upward trend relative to a baseline average of 1990 to 99. The 90 to 99 was 35.7 degrees Fahrenheit, and the 2012-21, to 21, which is our current 10-year period, the average temp is 39.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or an overall increase of 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. More granularly, June has been the month with the largest increase, a 5.5 degree Fahrenheit bump. February has seen the smallest increase, rising by 1.7 degrees Fahrenheit. But, Norton stresses, the key point is every month has had a temperature increase. There was no month that went down in its average annual temperature. As those temperatures have increased in the San Juans, annual precipitation, Norton explains, has declined by about 20% compared to the 1990-99 to baseline. That decline, Norton says, began around 1998. And that begins to impact the 10-year moving average immediately. And in fact, starting in 2002, really, stream runoff never recovers. Unlike temperature, the precipitation changes have not all been in the same direction month by month. April has seen the sharpest decline, with a drop in precipitation of about 50%. On the other end, December precipitation has increased by about 45%. But the majority of the months have seen double-digit percentage declines in precipitation. We've had an increase uh, in precipitation during the winter, uh, 0.7 inch, 7.5%, due entirely to the month of December, and then significant declines in the other three seasons. Given all these changes, it should be no surprise that stream runoff has also declined from that 1990-99 to baseline by a little more than 25%. All in all, here are some of Norton's big takeaways from the data. 
Uh, our summer, winter, seasonal transition months have shifted from October and April to November and March. Most reliable snow accumulation months have been compressed into December, January, and February. Increased winter precipitation is not sufficient to offset significant declines in spring, summer, and fall. And finally, March and April are no longer likely to salvage a low precipitation winter. All the commissioners agree a lot more needs to be done to address the challenges illustrated by the data. Here's commissioners Hillary Cooper, Chris Holstrom, and Lance Waring. We're in trouble. And um, I think we, uh, as a local government and certainly as a community, need to do uh, a lot more. And, and we're working on that. A lot is being done, and we need to continue to do as everything we can, both locally, regionally, and, of course, across the globe. Your data confirms my layman's observations over the last couple decades, and it's really hard to look at. But as Commissioner Cooper said, we need to roll up our sleeves and find ways to adapt and move forward. The full paper on trends in temperature, precipitation, and stream runoff in the San Juan Mountains is available at waterinfo.org. After more than two years, the town of Telluride is dropping its declaration of a local disaster emergency due to the COVID pandemic. It has been 27 months uh, since council adopted this uh, emergency um, declaration related to the onset of of COVID-19 back in uh, March of 2020. That's Telluride town manager Scott Robson speaking before council this week. Uh, I wouldn't say we're here to celebrate uh, that we're dropping an emergency declaration, but I think there is um, uh, certainly a reason to be, uh, you know, pleased that we are well beyond where we were two years ago when this was when this was passed. Certainly, COVID is still with us as a planet at this point, but uh, but we are not at the int- intensity we were. Uh, almost two and a half years ago, thank goodness. Robson notes part of the reason for declaring a local disaster in the first place was to ensure Telluride could receive federal and state emergency dollars. He adds the federal and state government quickly clarified a municipality does not need to have an emergency ordinance in place to receive funding. As such... By dropping this, we really uh, are, are not losing out on anything. Um, and I, I think the key implication probably for us is a as a town is that once we're out of this emergency declaration, there are some remote meeting policies, I believe that um, you know we would get back to. At the beginning of the pandemic, all town council meetings took place over Zoom. In recent months, council has met in person with the option to participate remotely. According to Tiffany Cavanaugh, Telluride town clerk, once the emergency declaration is removed, that will change. Council adopted uh, limits to allowing for remote participation when you're not in an emergency. So if the town manager does rescind this with direction from town council, then council members would be limited to participate um, remotely four times per year unless there's extenuating circumstances. And then um, remote participation in quasi-judicial hearings as well as executive sessions would no longer be permitted. Following discussion, Telluride Town Council unanimously directed Town Manager Robson to remove Telluride's declaration of a local disaster emergency. Hankering for some live tunes? There's a boatload of in-person music making its way across the Telluride area this weekend. 
Friday, Kevin McCarthy is at Heritage Plaza from 1 to 6 p.m., and Sammy Brew is playing Music on the Green in Reflection Plaza from 5 to 7 p.m. Saturday, R.C. Hall and Crooked Sky is playing the Fireweed Cafe in Rico from noon to 2. Justin Leffler is at Heritage Plaza from 1 to 6 p.m., and Ralph Dinosaur is taking on the Transfer Warehouse from 6 to 9 p.m. Sunday, Bob Heminger will be in Heritage Plaza from 1 to 6 p.m. The 2022 Music Fest Beyond Dvorak is at the My Residence, 7210 Colorado Highway 145, from 3 to 4 p.m. For those looking to get away for a bit, Yonder Mountain String Band is playing with Cruz Contreras for the URA Fire Department fundraiser at Felon Park in URA from 6 to 10 p.m. And Monday, July 4th, catch a 4th of July celebration concert with Dave Jordan and the NIA and support from Joint Point at the Sheridan Opera House at 8 p.m. and a community party with DJ Castle at the Transfer Warehouse from 8 to 10 p.m. For more information on live music, check out Koto's live music calendar at koto.org. Apple, blueberry, boysenberry, mud, meat, cream, custard, pumpkin, pot, peach, rhubarb, meringue, key lime, coconut cream. A pie really is only limited by your imagination. And this Tuesday, anyone with a crust and filling has a chance to show off their skills at the Wilkinson Public Library's Pie Contest. Contestants must bring their best pie to be judged by a, quote, esteemed panel of pie experts. The audience will also vote for appearance. A litany of prizes and, of course, glory will be on the line. Contestants should drop off their homemade pies between 5 and 6 p.m. on the library's back patio on the day of the competition, Tuesday, July 5th. Judging for the Wilkinson Public Library's pie contest will begin promptly at 6.01 p.m. Coloradans are still processing the Supreme Court's decision to end federal abortion protections. Some residents are joining together to protest, while others are making plans to protect or challenge access to abortion here. KOTO's Scott Franz has more on the early reactions to the ruling and what it might mean going forward. When Grace Archibald learned Friday morning that states could start banning abortions, she says she was shocked and scared about what might come next. So she made a sign, grabbed a loudspeaker, and that afternoon followed a crowd of protesters marching to the state capitol. I just got up and walked because that's kind of where hope comes from, from community. And it's scary when it feels like the community is against you. She says she was thankful she just made the move to Denver from Ohio, where lawmakers say they will quickly pass an abortion ban. Archibald led the crowd in chants. Drivers honked in support as they drove by. Archibald says each person who joined the crowd, which swelled to thousands of people by nightfall, gave her hope. I hope that that Colorado stays strong, that Colorado keeps humans first, keeps people first. Gia Boscola was in that crowd too. She thinks that people will start moving to Colorado in the next year because of its access to abortion, unlike in some other mountain states. I think we'll start to see a lot of influx from other states, and uh, it's already very expensive to live here. And supply and demand, I think, will continue because of the protections we have here, and I think a lot of the blue states will see similar 
similar patterns. More than 100 miles away in the Roaring Fork Valley near Aspen, medical professionals say they do not know quite yet how the ruling might affect people in Colorado. I can hardly believe it's real. Catherine Bernard is an emergency physician at the Aspen Valley Hospital. But I think for women in general, it's going to change the way they feel about the freedom they have to choose. And I just can't imagine that, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine it right now. But on the front range in Greenwood Village, Christy Burton-Brown is cheering the court's decision. You know, that makes history. It advances civil rights and equal rights under the law. Brown is the chair of the state's Republican Party. I think we should always keep working until every child is protected in love, protected in law. Brown has worked on several of the unsuccessful campaigns to get Colorado voters to restrict abortions. With the Supreme Court ending federal protections, she says she sees a new opportunity in the upcoming midterms. Colorado's laws are so extreme right now with late-term abortion on demand for any reason. That's going to be something we'll see voters reject at some point. Colorado has no time restrictions on abortion, but data shows that in recent years, less than 3% are happening after 21 weeks of pregnancy. Right now, opponents of abortion are already outgathering signatures they need for a ballot initiative in November, seeking a ban on most abortions. Democrats are looking to make abortion a top issue in 2024 and the upcoming midterms. Our rights absolutely depend on this midterm election in November. Denea Escar is the majority leader in the Colorado House. We need to make sure that folks are being mobilized and really realize what all is at stake when it comes to majorities, not only at, in Congress, but here in our state as well. Escar led efforts this spring to pass a law guaranteeing access to abortion in Colorado. But if Republicans take control of the statehouse, they could overturn it. Another growing issue in Colorado, abortion tourism, women coming from out of state for medical care. California, for example, is vowing to spend state funds to promote it, something Escar says Colorado cannot do. The difference between us and California is our state constitution right now forbids us from investing state funds into those types of situations. So we're going to have to not only look at legislation to see what we can do to help support providers, we as um, Coloradans need to see what we could do to help fundraise for these organizations that provide these essential services. Escar says Democrats are not considering a special session this summer to take up abortion legislation, but she says groups are starting to organize to pursue a constitutional amendment protecting abortion in 2024. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. Aspen Public Radio reporter Jenna McMurtry contributed to this story. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for showers and thunderstorms tonight with a low around 50 degrees. Friday, expect showers and thunderstorms with partly sunny skies and a high in the mid-60s. Friday night should be partly cloudy with scattered showers and thunderstorms and a low around 50 degrees. Saturday calls for mostly sunny skies with a high near 70 degrees and a 60% chance of precipitation. Saturday night, expect partly cloudy skies with a 60% chance of precipitation and a low around 50 degrees. This has been the news for Thursday, June 30th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.